Hi, and welcome to the Curious Cult Podcast, the show where I talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. I am your obsessively curious host, Nick Haradambis, and in this episode, David Perrell and I talk about the future of sim racing, how you start a career at the age of four, and what it's like to focus on completely different types of skills at one time. David is a professional racing driver who races Ferraris around the world. He's a three times Blancpain GT champion, two times Spa 24 hour class winner, a tech entrepreneur, and a world class designer. Dave, welcome to the Curious Culture. Generally, I like to ask people a very specific set of questions, but you and I have been friends for a very long time. I'm actually kind of excited about having my audience listen to your story because it is really an insane story. There's so many little things inside of it, and there's so much that you do and have done and still do that people don't know about. You've got like these siloed parts of your your life like your sim racers know that you're a pro racing driver but your pro racing drivers don't know that you're necessarily a designer and your designer people don't know that you race ferraris and like it's this really interesting world so i think the kind of the first thing that i want to talk about that isn't on the questions is i i'm stunned by this like curious link between real world and sim racing and you were doing this before sim racing was even cool i mean how did you get from Cape Town, uh, PlayStation, global sim racing to pro racing driver. Give us like the three minute or five minute version of that story. Right. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Nick. And uh, I'm pretty excited to tell the story to your audience because it's a different audience from what I'm used to. I'm usually speaking to racing fans. So it's nice to frame this in a different way for curious people, entrepreneurs, that kind of thing. Um, Right, so my story started in Cape Town, South. well, actually it started in Johannesburg, South Africa, but I'm going to skip that part. I was born with a helmet on my head, almost quite literally. Uh, I had a strange passion for helmets, um, which were my dad's helmets, which he wore when he rode his motorbike, and I'd wear them around the house and even have like the, my bottle like hanging out the bottom. And this passion grew and grew, and one day I found photos of my dad in a racing car, and it turned out that for a very brief moment in his life, he moved to the UK to try and pursue a career or a dream, not even a dream really, his friends told him to do it, to become a racing driver. And that's where these photos came from. It didn't, it didn't last long and he actually ended up hating it, but they left a, an, an impression on me from a very young age. And I wanted to be like my dad. My dad is for me, he's my ultimate hero. And I wanted to be a racing driver like my dad. I used to watch bikes first on TV and eventually cars. I actually started to watch Formula One quite late, which is weird for my sort of, what would you say, type of person. And around the age of 15, I discovered this thing called go-karting and begged my father to get me a kart. He said, no, it was way too expensive. Uh, but eventually my brother and I managed to convince him to get us one to share. Um, and at the time, to be honest, even in today's currency, and even back then, it wasn't an expensive cart. It was less than two and a half thousand rand for the whole thing, chassis and engine. And keep in mind now they're close to 80,000 rand or 4,000 euros for that kind of gear. Uh, but nevertheless, I got started and I got hooked. And he agreed to um, pay for our hobby, he used to call it, until we're 18 and then it was over. And he always said, you'll never be dedicated enough to this to for me to justify investing the full amount. And I took that, I was offended by that in some way because when I was younger, I, did, I didn't do everything, but I kind of let things slip after trying it for five minutes, like a normal ADD kid, if you will. But racing, I couldn't get over it. I, and at the same time as that, before I did karting, I was already playing the Formula One games on PlayStation, there was another PlayStation game called Gran Turismo 1, um, which made it an unbelievable imprint on my life and left a huge impression on my life, which now today serves, serves me well. And as I went through the racing ranks or pursued a racing career, if you will, a racing dream, I kept relying on my PlayStation to keep me sharp because where I grew up in particular, there was only one racetrack um, and I could never get there. It was an hour and a half's drive. And my parents weren't interested in racing to begin with, so they wouldn't take me. So I would use the PlayStation to learn how to learn. 
learn the, how to learn a racetrack, etc. So that when if somehow I manage to get at different racetracks in the world, get two different racetracks in the world, I would know how to pick them up. And that was thanks to my to my simulator. Getting back to the real stuff, I pursued karting until the age of 23, which is very late, and simply ran out of money around the peak of my, if you would say, my abilities. I got to the world finals in the Rotax Max. It's called the Rotax Max Grand Finals. I finished sixth, probably should have won it. I still give myself a hard time about that today. And shortly after that, ran out of money. And I was 23, 24, and I wasn't actually that upset because I'd kind of seen it coming. Of course, I wanted it to keep going. And eventually the dream just came to a crashing halt. But I said to my brother, who was at the time, you could, I mean, I'll call him my business partner, but at the time we were just filling Monday to Friday with a computer keyboard, basically. We, we only wanted to get to racetracks. But it, after my, my dreams got halted, if you will, I said, okay, Mark, I'm going to dedicate the, the same dedication and focus I put into becoming a racing driver, I'm going to put into our business. And initially our, our business was just about creating custom websites for the, the shop down the road. But we created a, a blog and we built that ourselves. We built the whole CMS ourselves because that's what you did back then. And I, the, the design of the blog, because I was a designer, I learned how to design by creating my first helmet design, custom helmet. I actually have one here. How old were you when you did that? Um, it was the day after the, the day my dad told me how to get a job. So give me an age, uh, well, the 19, like after I left school, so I was still actually 18. I thought after I left school, I was going to become a racing driver. So I scraped through school, scraped through, I'm still, I swear to God, I'm convinced that the Afrikaans teacher just passed me because he's like, well, I'm not going to fail him on this, but that's how bad I was. My final, this isn't a word of a lie. My final Afrikaans oral exam was done in English. So that went well. Um, so anyway, I learned how to use design software by designing my first helmet, which is the design I've kept for many years until recently. And when my brother left school, it turned out, and he came to join me in this pursuit of getting a job, it turned out he was much better at programming than me. And I was good at design. So we agreed back then when we were 18 and 19 that we'd start a little web design business. So by the time we got to 23 and coasting along, making less than minimum wage, frankly, I said, okay, we're going to dedicate, we're going to go full dedication to, to the business called Obox, O-B-O-X. And I, I released this blog and I, I drew the design and then scanned that in with a scanner and then used HTML and CSS to, to turn that into a, a website. And every single- Vividly remember that drawing. Like yes. I actually remember that website and that drawing. Yeah. And we called it we are not freelancers, but we were we freelancers. freelancers. Yeah. So we are not mm -hmm. freelancers.co.za. And this design in particular, just, it just hit a note. And we were one of the first people who created a hand-drawn design, which was like a common blog where everyone visited. And it was on every single design site in the world. And we got a flood of clients. From that, we created a video blog, a daily video blog, which is kind of the time I met you, Nick. Or heard about you because you were working at Zoopy. Yes. And anyway, the, that's not the point of the story. But anyway, uh, <laughs> this video blog also did well because we were one of the first people in the world to do daily tech video blogs. And yeah, um, you were Casey before Casey, man. Yeah. And we we got a flood of business from that too, but it also was starting to burn us out. That's not the point. Point is we'd established ourselves. And then from that, we created a theme company. So I had this experience from blogging. I had this experience from creating video blogs, uploading took seven hours in South African internet, 2008. Then we created this WordPress theme company, which was website templates. Cause my brother and I were so tired of building the same technology over and over again for custom, uh, for custom clients. So we started to templatize it and that became a success as well. Uh, but during this whole time, I had the full intention of coming back to racing. But I wanted to do that on my own terms. I didn't want to come back with no money like I did the last time. 
And after, to cut a long story short, about seven years after I'd stopped, I finally felt I'd saved enough money to give it one more crack. Turns out it wasn't nearly enough, but it was enough to get my foot in the door. I cold called racing teams overseas, did one race, which went very well, did a second race, which went terribly, broke my leg. But from that, um, sorry, cr crashed the car and broke your leg. Yes. I had brake failure in Malaysia. I wasn't even given crutches. I had to quite literally limp home <laughs> with a broken leg, quite literally. Um, but it, it got me going. And if we fast forward five years, I'm now a professional racing driver. The racing has become my full-time gig and web design has become a passion project. So it's, it's inverted. I'm back to being a racing driver, which was always my dream. It's a hell of a story. So as everyone who just heard that story now understands, you're an extremely busy guy with real life racing, sim racing, businesses, investments, uh, a partner, travel. Uh, the question I want to start with is how the hell do you segment these parts of your life? Because the advice that most people give and most people get is do one thing, do it well, focus. So yes. how do you like, how do you manage this stuff? Um, I must be honest, before I answer the question, I do have this massive conflict in my head because my, my philosophy is that you should isolate your focus on one thing and become the master of that one thing and perfect the craft. And I'm, I'm a big fan of the Japanese way of perfecting their craft, but as I'm getting older and becoming more self-aware, I've come to realize it's just not the way I work. I'm very distracted. I'm a distracted individual. And I used to fight against that, but now I've sort of embraced it. So I give myself this very loose framework, essentially, of three-hour blocks. And I try and do that a specific thing within those three hours and then move on to the next thing. So, okay, at the moment, I can't go to gym because of the COVID, but it would be that the, the first three-hour block of my day was dedicated to health and fitness. Then the next three-hour block was dedicated to business analytics, like analyzing all that kind of stuff, even this boring stuff like accounting. The following three hours would be with uh, streaming or creating a video for YouTube. And then the final three hours could actually be lifestyle, like relaxing with my girlfriend. Um, I have though developed a way of being pretty good at uh, creating a silo around my focus. If the priority is my racing, 90% of my thinking goes towards racing and my creativity actually goes out the window, but I've become quite, it's just with experience that I've become aware of when these phases start to enter my sort of being. So I am a busy guy, but I'm nothing compared to, you know, the people that we used to watch on, on YouTube and stuff. I'm no Gary. I'm no Casey. I still, I can binge watch two hours of YouTube in the evening, but I don't feel guilty about it because my, my philosophy is if I have to do four things in a day and I tick three of them, I've had a successful day because I never used to be that productive. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And it is something that often comes up in these conversations I have with people like you is what do you say to people who feel guilty because they're not working on their billion dollar idea? And for me, it, it ticks into that space of give yourself time to think, give yourself time to breathe. So, I mean, that is one of the questions coming. So let's deal with it now. Like, do you give yourself time to breathe, like free time to just wonder and think? Yes. Yes. Uh, my mom always used to say I was just a wanderer and I didn't, I don't actually, unless I know you very well, I, I'm very quiet to, to strangers and I do, I wonder all the time. And just talking on that point of not feeling like you're achieving anything or a sense of uselessness without giving too much sort of self-help advice here. The first three years, I had to eventually move to England to, to, to become a professional, uh, a, a professional race. You were eventually pushed to move to England by some of pushed. your friends. And uh, <laughs> I was pushed in like a tiny, tiny window. I arrived here with literally two suitcases with, uh, that was my life. I arrived in, a, in an apartment, which I thought was furnished and didn't even have a bed. I had to rush to Ikea, blah, blah, blah. The first three years that I was here, it, it was so, is the right word debilitating, but it felt dis disorientating. And I had no friends here. I'm not very social. I do not just go to the bar and, and say, hi, hey guys, let's have a beer. That's not how I operate. 
and I, I had no creativity, nothing at all. And I felt, I felt useless. Frankly, I felt like I was a deer in the headlights. I wasn't making enough money to, to afford the travel to, to get to the races. So I was hustling like crazy, but not making any, I wasn't creating anything. I was just working from, uh, you know, I'll make an extreme because there were times where I'd have to skip meals to be able to afford to live in England. So, okay. And the net benefit was I'd lost weight for racing, but if I had to skip breakfast and lunch, because I just couldn't afford to eat at some point, that's literally how bad it was. And I didn't know how to fix that. I didn't know what the move was. And now thinking back, it, it was so obvious. I should have linked my real racing back to my sim racing because that's what I do now, but I couldn't see it back then. And it just took time to think it through and to see and gain perspectives. Well, that and, and there's the timing thing, right? I would argue that if you had to link those two things before you were a pro racing driver with the brand at Ferrari and before sim racing had taken off, there's no credibility. There's also no network. There's no YouTube explosion for you, like which we'll get to. But there's this, there's this beautiful thing about timing. And I mean, I, I, there's so many uh, technologists who basically build something and then wait for the technology to catch up to them right. so that they can launch it. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what you were experiencing. Um, I do want to mention that I do consider myself actually a very patient human being when it comes to pursuing my ideas and stuff. Like, I don't know, frankly, I don't know any other professional racing drivers who purposefully took a seven-year break, who said, you know what, I'm stopping. I'm going to focus on something else. I'll keep this in my mind, but I'm not coming back until I can and not force the situation. And... I've done that with a few things now that I do the, we will get to this, I understand, but now that I coach people online and have created a company around it, it took a year of experimenting. My YouTube channel, which now has close to 40,000 subscribers, took five years of experimenting. And then I, once I found a hook, I, I pursued that aggressively, but I never rushed it. And I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness because sometimes I do act too slowly. There's no question. But that thinking this, that wondering uh, that you bring up is is an element of that patience, trying to picture what's the second level here, you know, and it's it's worked for in my favor. Yeah, I actually think now's a great time to talk about that experimentation that you talk about, because one of the things I think is tied to what I'm researching in innovation and curiosity is failure. And what I'm uncovering with a lot of people like yourself and scientists and Builders, they all give themselves space to wonder and freedom to experiment without the pain of failure. Like they don't berate themselves when they fail. And I, I know that you struggle with failure a lot, especially when it comes to racing. And for you, failure is a lot more imminent in racing. Like you did not win that race or you did. You crashed or you didn't. You made money and then you, did, you didn't. But in the YouTube world, you've been a lot more forgiving. Like you just happily move on and plug away until you found this thing that exploded. So like, how do you deal with the emotional and mental res responses between, yeah, failing at a race is brutal and horrific and no one talks to you afterwards versus failing at YouTube. You're like, oh, that's okay. Um, it depends who you place that, what you place the values on. Um, so to go a bit deep on failure, I, I've always said you only failed, you failed when, once you've given up. But you can experiment with things that don't work and you continue to try again at another on, on another idea. Um, but it doesn't mean that you've failed yet. Failed yet is a, it's a framing, if the failure. And, you know, you could have said that I was a failed racing driver at 23, but I hadn't given up. I was just I was just doing it in a different way to other people. And eventually it worked out. And now. I'm only one of five South Africans who makes a living overseas from racing. Uh, obviously, demographically, you know, I have some benefits. I'm not going to deny that for one second. But on the YouTube side, that's a creative outlet. Because I grew up in the design world, you're constantly experimenting with colors, fonts, layouts, uh, landing pages, uh, you know, checkout funnels. The, those experiments, they are ephemeral. They come and go and you even sometimes even forget what you what you learned the day before and, and make the same mistake twice. But you're not failing. And YouTube is the same thing. You're trying to find an audience. You're trying to find more than 
say 10 people who like what you're making. And it takes a long time to find that voice that where you feel natural and you can present naturally without being, without being hard work. Cause the key, in my opinion, the key to having a successful YouTube channel or let's say Twitch or whatever, the second that you're not being yourself, it will become work and you will not be able to sustain it. It's as simple as that because it's a hungry beast that you have to feed two, three times a week. And if you're not feeding it two, three times a week, because it takes a lot of energy from you or it doesn't feel natural, it won't, you won't sustain it over the long term. So I had to find that balance, which I eventually did. I eventually found a way to connect the, uh, the YouTube viewers to my real racing world through a niche that actually made sense, which was the sim racing. That experimentation took five years of, you could say failure, but oh, it failure. was experimenting. Yes, but I think just to hammer onto this point, I think you, you're talking about lots of different things here that people can interpret in different ways. And I want to focus in on your perspective of failure here is that you didn't see a video that gets 10 views as a failure. You saw it as a different thing. And we live in a world of immediacy where 21 year olds expect to upload a YouTube and get famous. They expect to hit a TikTok that gets them a million views and get famous. There is this need. And what you and I both know through 20 years of failure is consistency yes. above all else, right? Consistency, um, So you're yes. making it sound simple, right? You're making it sound like, oh, I just don't think of it as failure. But every kid that listens to this and is trying to get famous will see it as a failure when they don't hit a million views in one video. You just, you just frame it in a way that isn't failure. And I think that's a, it's a talent and a learned skill. It is a learned skill. It's the way my karting mentor used to frame it was, David, you can't just go from grade one to grade 12. You know, you, you can't just say, okay, now I can count. Now I can do algebra and now I'm a physicist. To learn how to count takes 12 years, takes from grade one to grade 12, basically. And it's the same concept that you have to apply to anything that you want to become good at or successful in. You, you can't jump from just learning how to crawl to now running a marathon. It's literally, that metaphor is literally true to anything in life that you want to pursue and be good at. Yeah, there's something else that you say to me quite often that I think is worth mentioning on this point. It's more like the negative side when you're having a shitty day and you feel like you haven't accomplished much and you haven't given yourself time to wonder. You often will say to me, bro, it doesn't matter. You're not going to remember today. Like this yes. is just another day in the list of days. And, and it's actually for me being a nihilist and an existentialist, like that kind of liberates me that this is just one day and my shitty mood and the fight with my partner and the dog that bit me, they will all pass tomorrow unless it's physically putting me in like danger and I'm going to die. I'm going to remember it. But most of the time, that's not the day you're having. In, in racing, we are told that we have to, to chase the ultimate lap time when in fact, if we think in a longer term, like we're doing a 48 kilometer race, to think of each kilometer and spread it out and think more long term. Now, if you think of that in a business sense, what is the hour that you're rushing through today going to make a difference towards in 30 years time? You're going to forget that moment. It's not going to be nearly as significant. And if you start to, it takes a long time to zen out, frankly, and get to that point. But if you do arrive there and start to realize how much how insignificant this moment is in the grand scheme of your decision-making and your reactions, you can start to take a much calmer approach. And to be honest with you, when I did, when I ran Obox, I didn't understand that theory at all. And now with my new business coach, Dave Academy, I'm a hundred times more relaxed about if I miss a launch day by, you know, one day, it's not going to be the end of the world. None. If I want to sell to 10,000 customers, they're not all going to come on launch day. They're going to come over a much longer period. So if I miss it by one day or 24 hours, it's not the end of the world. Absolutely. Your, your career has kind of been dotted with a lot of mentors. Do you feel like you seek out people who push you and push your curiosity? Because you're obviously hungry for knowledge. Even as a racing driver, when you were younger, you're always looking for that extra split second on a corner and you have to defer to someone else to give you the advice. So like, are there certain people throughout your life in business and in racing who've kind of dragged you along to the path that you're on? I kind of dragged them along unwillingly, if anything. Uh, so when I went racing, my dad didn't want to, he didn't want me to become a racing driver. Let's be clear about that. He wanted me to have a more stable career something in tech, maybe, cause he also has a tech company software, sorry, software company. 
So when I was at the racetracks, I was on my own with my brother for the most part. Um, and we had to, we had to seek out people who could help us seek out people with greater knowledge. And I was, I always naturally gravitated to the most successful or popular person in the pit lane and tried to become their friend and hopefully they could pass on knowledge. So I have had throughout my career in mostly in racing, obviously, but obviously also in business, uh, people who I look up to and seek advice from. Um, but they sometimes didn't even know that they were my mentors. The one guy who I consider um, who had a massive influence on my life, I sent him an email about a year ago to thank him for everything he taught me and how much of it I apply. And he said he had no idea that I was absorbing anything he was telling me. He thought I was just a young whippersnapper. <laughs> he, he, he loves what I've done at the racetrack and everything. He's like, David, you were, I never came across that you were listening. And I'm like, Nick, his name's also Nick. I listen to every word and I still think about it today. But I, th I think it's, mentors are important. You know, the, the whole Jedi metaphor there is, is something to consider, but it's not the end of the world. A lot of people have gone in their own path. In some ways I have, I've just pieced together advice from different people along the way to, to, make, to create the path that I'm walking on now. Um, but I think it's helpful. I, I was the oldest, I'm the oldest child in my family amongst my cousins and my brothers and sisters, brother and sister. Uh, and I, I always felt like I wish I had an older brother. So seeking out these older people who seemed wiser to me and more experienced was something just that came naturally to me. Yeah, it's interesting because it's a question I get asked all the time is, oh my goodness, how did you find a mentor? And people just assume that I had mentors and I'm just not that guy. I've never had a very firm business mentor, life mentor. I've had the opposite, actually. I've had lots of older people who've only shown me ways not to do things. That's kind of how I've got mentors in my life. So I don't think there's a single route to follow, but I, I do admit I've always missed having a mentor role there to kind of go, yeah, that's an option, but maybe this is an option too. And that kind of pushes me into the next kind of way that I want to ask you about walking away from things and failure. This is an interesting question to ask you specifically because you've had so many walls, literally and metaphorically, that you've crashed into that most other people would have gone, okay, cool beans, I'm, I'm done now. So my question is, how do you know which curiosity to follow? You know, you read a lot about stocks. You read a lot about a lot of different things. You didn't want to become a stockbroker though. How do you know what to become a thing and how do you know when to walk away from something? Actually, I think that's something I've, gotten better at over time is I know only to pursue things that I'm good at or that I know that I believe I'm good at. Um, I know, for example, that I'm a good designer. I, I definitely have the genes of, from my mother's side and her whole family were creative people. They were artists. Her, her brother's a professional artist and her mother was, and she probably could have been herself. I definitely have that creative element in me. Uh, and I know I can drive. I've proven that over and over and over again in racing against people in simulators, you know, amongst millions of people and in the real world as well. Those are the things I'm good at. I try not to waste too much time with the things that I'm bad at. And, but I know that I'm lucky there. I know, for example, that I'm lucky that I, I was born with a passion, if you will, or an obsession with something, with a pursuit that not many people are. So that answer is not, good enough for many people, but I don't have another way of, I don't have another way of answering that question. I just know mm. that I'm not good at academic things. So I, I'm not a big book reader of how to books and stuff. I prefer stories about real people who've created, who've built real things. And then I try and take a lesson from there and apply it to my pursuit, but I'm not about to read a book on how bonds and treasuries and everything, how to calculate that in a spreadsheet. I can't do that, but I do love stocks, but I love the story behind a stock, if you will. So for me, curiosity, that kind of curiosity becomes, okay, I know I'm good at saying I want to become better at that thing. And I forget everything else, often to the detriment of relationships, if I'm honest, around me, because I, you know, like most ambitious people, I become psycho-focused. But that's just how it is. I just don't waste my time with things I'm not good at. 
I love hearing from people like you who just make it the norm. So many of my guests just, oh yeah, you know, this comes at the sacrifice of a lot of other things. And I think it's super important to highlight that for most people, what you're aspiring to is absolutely never going to be their life. I've started telling people that, you know, I've written a book about side hustles. You're starting a side hustle to be a billionaire. Get it through your thick skull. You are never going to be a billionaire. It is not in you. Yeah. You are not one of those people. You're not that person. And it's it's amazing to sit and speak to you and be lucky enough to speak to you so often. Someone who does race at the top level in the world, you do get to say things like, yeah, I lost girlfriends because I've seen them fall by the wayside, but you make it sound easier than it is. And the amazing part watching it from the outside is while you were doing it, it was easy. I watched you not make a hard choice. So these obsessions for you aren't actually difficult. This is just the way you do things. You do sacrifice everything. Um, I'm frankly, I have a nice smile, but I'm very selfish. And I've, if people get in my way, I just can't help myself but go, well, you are not going to be my life. When I'm 75 years old, I'm not going to be happy that I chose. And I know it sounds brutal. I know it sounds brutal, but I just feel like I had this thing in my, in my being that I had to achieve. And until I achieved it, I would have never forgiven myself. It's still like, like I said, at the beginning of the show, I give myself such a hard time to this day, 10, 12 years later, for not winning the Karting World Championships. I was in the lead. I ran wide, hit a curb. And that happens in racing all the time. And I can't forgive myself for it. And I often wonder if what I'm doing now, the reason I became so obsessed again with motorsport and made more, even much worse sacrifices or bigger sacrifices the last three year, uh, five years is because I didn't become a world champion. I didn't have that closure. My, my karting mentor was a world champion and I wanted to emulate him kind of like I wanted to emulate my dad as trying to become a racing driver and I never achieved it. And I, I've kind of made peace with it these days, but I never forget it. I never forget that feeling. And I don't want to feel that again in my life. I don't want to feel like I had the opportunity in my hands and I let it slip by. I believe this is my philosophy in life. A lot of people think that because they're born with a the talent, they are owed something. They are owed the opportunity because they can run fast. They are owed the opportunity to get to the Olympics. It's completely the wrong way around. You were already given that something you felt you were owed. You have the talent that many people would do anything for. They have the work ethic. You have the talent. It's your job now to focus on the work ethic, the hard work to maximize what you've been given for free. And I was born with certain things for free. And it's, it's up to me now to, to not waste that opportunity. And I even look at people who are in my position, but have more talent and who waste it. And I feel sick when I watch them waste it. And I can't live with myself if, if that was me as well, because I chose, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because I chose my, my girlfriend over this gift I was given. It sounds brutal, but you know. Don't, don't have to apologize to me, bro. <laughs> I realize that. And I know this is not really much to do with curiosity, but it's more about your hunger to pursue your curiosity. I think it's and, intimately tied. Yes. And I always tell the young kids who mail me, they want to become racing drivers. Well, how badly do you want it? Let's start with the most basic thing. Are you willing to sell your shoes? Are you willing to sell your PlayStation that you hold so dear? Uh, and let's go up more levels. Eventually, are you willing to break up with your wife or girlfriend or nuclear bomb your your best relationship with your brother and your friends to pursue the stream because i'm telling you now i am and that's who you you are competing against in this in this field you want to get my seat you have to want it as much as me i'm sorry but that's just the reality and i think it's interesting that you you are uh pigeonholing it into this field i don't think it's this field i think to be at the top level of anything you need to make these sacrifices. But the key thing is, how do you define the top level in your life? And how do you define failure yes. in your own life? Because if your own life, the definition of success is two kids, a wife and husband that love you and a house, that's great. As long as you've acknowledged that that's what's for you. And the thing, the thing that you, you and I have always debated for the last 12 years or 15 years is you have been blessed and so lucky 
that you knew what you wanted to do from such a young age because you could go straight at it. Most people are still wondering about what is it that they want. So that, that focus comes from knowing from the beginning where you want to go. Uh, yeah, and actually my friendship with you, which made me realize it and actually made me more hungrier than I previously was to make sure that I followed through on this, this passion of mine. Because I came to realize that you are, I would say, equally talented and probably more talented at more elements in life. But you don't have what I have, which is singular obsession on one single topic to be the one thing yeah. in that thing. You know? Yeah, I'm a jack of all trades. You have a much more broader base, which actually serves you much better in real, let's not say real life, but in reality, <laughs> no, well, racing, -racing you know, life. it's a little... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Racing is a bubble, I think. It's it's yeah, it's ridiculous. We go around in circles and we somehow find value in this. But anyway, your your broader skill set serves you better in reality. And mine, I I have a tendency to nuclear bomb or send a bomb into relationships and stuff in the pursuit of something which is very much more isolated and, and refined, if you will, to a single point. So but it still made me realize that. I always look back at the 15-year-old David who was begging his dad for a cart and the 26-ish old David who at that point in his life had almost given up entirely on motorsport. And if you told either of those guys that he'd be racing Ferraris around the world, it would, it's so far beyond reality. It's so far beyond what could possibly be real, but it it exists. And I still every day wake up. I can't believe it myself. I don't treat it as myself. It's like I'm putting on a Superman suit when I go to the racetrack. Cause when I come back to my house or my apartment in England, that feels more real. Absolutely. So tell me how, how do you discover new things? Because you, you do as, as much as you claim to not be an expert and deep into a lot of things, you do have quite a wide variety of interests. And I mean, I've mentioned stocks, bonds and investment and crypto and design and business and entrepreneurship and tech and politics. And we, there's so much. So how do you discover new things that make you curious? What's your actual process? Okay. I'm inherently lazy, believe it or not. So I love to spend time in front of the TV, but I don't, I'm not a series watcher. I'm more like a YouTuber that clicks on interesting topics, but I do have sort of some key topics, which are my funnel, if you will. The one is finance. I've always loved finance from a very young age. Um, the other is sports, but not, I don't watch sports. Actually, I don't watch football, but I watch, I will happily watch a documentary about a footballer perfecting his craft. And you could say craft in a, is a topic that I follow a lot, like trying to understand, and I don't have a better word, mastery. And that's amongst many fields. My favorite movie is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Another one is Free Solo. These are people yeah. who, who did pursue uh, an idea to its purest form. Um, and I listen to a lot of podcasts on those two topics. And then I have some other things like design. Design, I never actually pursued out of a willingness because it involved computers. My father was involved in computers. He was never around. Okay. He, he worked from home, but he was never around. And that's what I pictured computers to be like that industry, the tech industry. And I was forced into it and I became good at it because I had to, not because I wanted to. The net effect though, is that I've developed a passion for it, but I never ever seek out information on design. Um, I just kind of learned by trying and I don't read books on it because all those books are related to how to's and I, I can't read a how to. So I've kind of lost train of thought on your question, but my way of, I kind of stumble upon things through my curiosity and I, I pick up a lot from podcasts and stuff. I travel a lot these days, a lot. Okay. Not right now, but I used to spend a ton of time in airports and trains and taxis, a ton hours upon hours a day and you have to fill that with something so it was podcasts and it started with finance podcasts and then they would make a recommendation you just follow the rabbit hole I'm, i tend to follow the rabbit hole more than anything else cool good answer so now that you are a pro racing driver 
how do you think that curiosity factors into the continuation of your career, right? And I, I'm not, I, I don't want you to fall into the talk of ambition or the next step. Like, how do you stay curious and interested in this thing that you're at the peak? It's very easy. Honestly, when you are pursuing a, I'm going to use sports as this example here and say it's one of the easiest, the easier elements in this question, because we're always trying to get better. We never think that we are good enough. We've never won enough. You know, we are greedy, selfish, and incredibly insecure. That's why you want to be a 10 times world champion. You want to prove to people, see, I told you so, basically. So that sort of, also the pressure that's required or that's put on you to perform. I'm with the team, for example, my primary team, Rinaldi Racing, the, the team owner, Michele Rinaldi, is incredibly demanding of of me being at my peak no matter when no matter when I'm driving whether it's at a test day every single lap best be my best efforts so in that regard it's easy for me it's easy for me to be curious it's easy for me to try and pursue a better way of driving i'm i am a i obsess over the details i take a huge amount of time to study the racetracks I'm going to, even if I've been done already done a million laps around there, I'm always looking for a different way to approach a corner, a different technique to overtake someone. And that's just born in the, the competitive nature. That's come, that's bred out of necessity. Our curiosity is bred out of necessity. If you take that away, I'll no longer be obsessed about racing lines and apexes, but I'll drift into business and I'll start to look at analytics and conversion rates and, and try and see what I can find there. The key thing for me there is, you always got to say to yourself, okay, in my case, I know what, it, what it's like to be completely dedicated to something. I know what that feeling is. So if it's not in racing, I, I know how to chase that feeling in business because I've been, I've been able to identify it in multiple areas of my life and I know what it feels like um, when I'm focused and not focused. That's how curiosity works for me. I think there's also, obviously, because I know you so well, there's parts of your curiosity that extend in racing beyond just driving a car. Your insane training habits. I mean, I've watched a video of you on a balancing ball playing ping pong with yourself while trying to stay stable. I mean, that's not a normal way to train. And your diet. So the training and diet are two aspects of racing that you're quite curious about too. You're always looking at new ways to eat. I'm stunned that you haven't gone vegan when Lewis Hamilton did, <laughs> but there's this world of things that like uh, you use. And I'm sorry about this. Uh, anyone who's an accountant, but to use accounting as the thing, you become an accountant. There are still interesting little nuances in accounting, even though from the outside, it looks boring as hell. When you're a racing driver, there's still nuance and curiosity outside of driving a car that makes you a better racing driver. Like your schedule is intense and insane. And you're always trying to make it better from other things, not just driving. That's because the ability to drive came to me for free. Okay. I'm not, I'm, I've always said this, my book's probably going to be called, it's not about talent because I was never the most talented. I still, I know I'm not, but the, the driving element is two hours on a Sunday. So the, the real work happens outside of the car and you have to have the work ethic to, to apply that sort of discipline. Um, and okay, I love a chocolate, but I also exercise when there's no COVID um, two to three hours per day. Um, and you, I hate it. I hate the work that goes around it. You know, I wish I could just sit on the simulator the whole day, but that's not going to make me a better racing driver. The, the end goal here is to be a better racing driver, the best version of myself. Um, and if that means I have to be in the gym for three hours a day or eat my green smoothies so I can stay on weight, then so be it. And it's good for my mental game. Be, to be a good racing driver is not, if you're happy, you usually perform at your best. Happy or, well, sorry, it's in my case, happy. Some people need to be angry. So they need, yeah. they need someone to tell them that they can't win. And it's like, I'm going to go prove you wrong. I'm the opposite. I'm like, just, if I'm happy, I'll be performing at my best. And in order to be happy, I need to know that I'm prepared. So that, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch the YouTube videos about dieting. And yes, I know some of them aren't, you know, the most accurate, but I've learned how to judge it. <laughs> oh, so... 
your industry is quite an old one that's racing specifically and i mean i know that it's very technical having seen the cars and seen the teams but when you think of innovation like how do you define it and think about it and explain it to other people because you're going through quite an innovative shift in your career positioning too from real racer to sim racer to coach like how how do you think of innovation what does that word bring out for you right so okay we may have to go a little bit deep here so I tied into to mastery in that I've always wondered how do you innovate in the world of motorsports as a driver? You know, what's the Michael Jordan version of going out and taking 1000 shots in practice so that you hit the 10 shots in the game or hundred. Okay. And I came to realize that it was my simulator. Now, what, people don't know is now these days it's like oh but it's esports it's so obvious but trust me i up until two years ago i was laughed at at the racetrack because i said i used a simulator to become a better racing driver all the other drivers were like what what do you mean and now quite literally all those drivers message me on the daily to ask what kind of pedals they should buy what kind of steering wheel they should buy for the simulator i started to realize that when michael jordan is playing at his or kobe bryant or whoever are in the gym uh, at the courts rather they are they're simulating their game and in the racing world it's one of the very few um sports which can be simulated in a video game because the same inputs that you apply to the video game to get a certain result are almost exactly the same to the real world so you can develop the muscle memory at home and then bring it to real life which is what jordan was doing at on the courts in basketball, by taking a thousand shots, he was developing muscle memory. Tiger Woods used to just practice his backswing and never actually touch the ball. He would spend the whole morning on his backswing, feeling the wrist rotation, the, the hip rotation, and knowing, oh, that's a good backswing. Magic would happen when he, stroke, when he struck the ball. Deliberate practice. And I came to realize that simulators were that area of innovation. And the beauty is, it's at home. I can do it as much as I need to. Uh, and, and it costs nothing besides the initial capital investment of a PC or a PlayStation. And now it's becoming the norm. So I've always wanted to blur the lines because I knew that this was clearly the future. Sim racing was clearly the future. How do I blur the lines between real racing and sim racing? And I've started to do that now. I've created an academy, which we, we would you say, employ, we contract real racing drivers and engineers and offer them as a service or as teachers to sim races. Um, so that's my area of focus. And I believe it's a link to talk about mastery. Uh, someone like Beethoven or Mozart, sorry, how they pursued different areas of expertise, became very good at those things. But then when they fell back on their core passion, their core competency, they were able to lean upon their expertise in multiple fields to become, to come up with a new and creative channel within their competency. Um, and in my case, I, I have an, a lot of experience in sim racing, a lot of experience in, in tech, building websites, building technologies, and combined with understanding the culture of motorsport, which is not the same as running a normal business. And I'm not by no means a master at any of them, but I realize that I've, I am reaching a core competency in enough of these in, in all three fields to be able to link them together to create something with a fresh perspective and innovate within our field. Because now that they're all starting to melt together, people are starting to need the services that I can offer. Absolutely bang on. And I think you have perfectly summed up exactly what this curiosity drive is that I'm so obsessed with, is if you weren't curious about life, you wouldn't be what's called an expert generalist. You have one core set of skills, a racing driver, and you're an expert generalist because you're a designer, you're a technologist, you're a thinker, you're a reader. All of these things make you better at your core competency. But if you weren't curious about everything else, you would just be a robot. You'd be a robot that drove a car and you're not. And I think that's the interesting part of curiosity for me is when all these things kind of crash and collide. And with the advent of technology becoming quicker and quicker and more developed, all these things are colliding. If you were a racing driver 50 years ago, your interest in design would mean nothing. Precisely. And I was born at the right time for what I am doing right now. Do I wish I was born a bit later so I could be a professional sim racer? Uh, maybe, but I'm pretty happy with what I've got because 
I think that I'm going to be one of the last generations to race cars which have these like loud sounding engines, you know, gas powered engines, petrol powered rather. And I know that they're bad for the environment. I'm acutely aware of that. And I'm happy that sim racing and electric racing is coming along. But I grew up in an era where the sound of an engine makes me emotional. And I've been lucky enough to experience that. I think I was, for my, for what I am, I'm so happy and so I feel so privileged or lucky with the cards that I've been dealt in my life, genuinely. Um, and I don't want to waste that. So when, once my racing stops, which is inevitable, you cannot race forever. You know, how do I still keep that passion going along with the other things that I've learned in my life? I have a big enough tool set now to, to make use of it, if you will. Absolutely. So Dave, final question. What are you curious about right now? And this can literally be anything. What's occupying your brain? I'm trying to see how, because sim racing is growing, but it's nothing compared to the other esports of this world. And it's interesting because when I started our business, Obox, and we started to create these WordPress templates, at the time that we got in, the industry was so nascent that all WordPress templates were free at the time. And then one of our friends that we both know, mutual friend, AD, he, he started to sell a, a template and everyone thought this was unbelievably like unorthodox and how dare he. The sim racing world is in exactly the same place. And it's so strange to draw the parallels between the two. And it feels like, honestly, it feels like I have an unfair advantage in that I lived through the entire gestation period of WordPress from free theme to now multi-million dollar corporations. I lived through every single step of that before leaving to go racing. And now I'm seeing the same thing happen in sim racing, in the esports of racing. And I, I'm so excited about it that despite being locked in my apartment and not being able to smell petrol and brakes and whatever at real racetracks, I'm leaping out of bed and not going to sleep due to my excitement in the sim racing world because the time has finally come where my passion, because I've had such a huge passion for sim racing my whole life and have had, fought, have had to fight tooth and nail to prove to people that it is a real thing, that you can find value in it. I don't want to be left behind and miss this opportunity now. Sometimes I do wake up panicking going, oh, I've missed the boat here. Other people have gotten ahead of me because they had one news article in a famous racing magazine. That's not going to matter in five years, David. You know, that's, I have to remind myself that. Just be patient. You've been patient for 20 years pursuing some racing. You don't have to rush into it in the next month, but it is occupying my mind 24 seven. Amazing. So in closing, tell my listeners and viewers where they can find you, where they can follow you, and what do you want to push and promote to them? Tell them about your YouTube, Coach Dave, go for it. So if you guys want to discover more about me, um, I have sort of three main channels, if you will. Instagram is where I post all my racing stuff, my real racing stuff. Instagram.com forward slash David Peril. So if you're a car fan, go there. And then Twitter is more focused on my passion for motorsport in general. I generally share my opinions on twitter.com forward slash Dave Peril. And my primary focus at the moment is my YouTube channel, which is focused almost entirely on sim racing and the gray area between sim racing and real racing. Uh, and I post a lot of live streams and videos there of me competing in real life and competing in the sim world. And finally, if for some reason a sim racer is listening to this and you're looking for some coaching from a real racing driver, coachdaveacademy.com. And what was your YouTube? You didn't mention your YouTube. Okay. So I'm David Peril on everything, basically. Everything. So okay, great. Yeah. David Peril on everything. Luckily being born in the tech world, which was just starting out, Nick, I was able to grab my username for everything. Yeah. What a champ. Dave, as always, uh, never dull speaking with you. Uh, I really appreciate all the time and hopefully get some clients for the sim racing. Coach Dave. Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.